Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I sit down and talk with Brian Starr with Tarantino Engineering Consultants, and we talk about exterior public art sculptures. So in particular, we talk about the Unum Project, which is by Blessing Hancock, who is the artist, and it is located in Santa Rosa, California. So as the name kind of alludes to, Exterior public art sculptures are typically commissioned by artists. So an entity, whether that be public or private, decides that they want to have some, you know, a sculpture out front of their property. So they commission an artist to do this. So in this case for the Uno Project, it was Blessing Hancock. So the designs for these sculptures a lot of times can be 30 feet or more in height which means that they have to have a structural engineer as well. So a lot of times the art is actually the structure as well. So it's working those two pieces together so that it fulfills the vision of the artist, but also is safe and is able to support the code required loads that need to be applied. So that's where Brian comes in. So a little bit about Brian. Brian and I actually worked together out in Colorado for a while, and he has since kind of found this niche in the exterior public art sculpture space. So he's an expert in this field and works for Tarantino Engineering Consultants, which is based in Maryland, but Brian works remotely from Boise, Idaho. So most people that meet Brian are not surprised that he's an engineer. Born with an obsessive attention to detail, he loves solving problems to help others succeed. He has more than 20 years of experience designing projects of all shapes, sizes, and materials in all parts of the country. 
Bryant Thrives most when collaborating with architects, contractors, designers, and artists. His multidisciplinary approach to the work of engineering has earned Bryant a unique portfolio of work, public art sculptures, and foundation systems. It's easy to see Brian's passion for collaborative and creative design come through in this talk. He is frequently coordinating with the artist, the fabricator, and the erector. So he has this great ability to be able to translate structural engineering to someone that maybe isn't as familiar with it and really takes it on as his mission and passion to see the artist's vision through fruition. And it's kind of interesting talking through this type of work because a lot of times it's the same artist, it's the same fabricator because it is so specialized and so niche that there's a lot of things that have to get worked out on that first project. So now that they've already done that, they're able to kind of carry that through. But every project is unique in its own regard and requires special challenges by nature with it being sculptural. The pieces are typically very ornate, very organic, non-orthogonal, so that, as you can imagine, creates some challenges, but also some interest and exciting pieces to it. So with that, I will hand it over to Brian and we will talk about the Unum Project. Brian, thank you for being here today. Hi, Carrie. Great to talk with you again. Yes, yes. So great to see you. So the project that we're going to talk about today is called Unum, and it is a piece that was commissioned in Santa Rosa, California. And there's just a lot of different things that go into this. So unlike a building structure, this is a very, typically a very free form, organic type of shape. So as you can imagine, it's difficult to put this into orthogonal drawings for the listener. And I guess I just want to try to describe the piece a little bit. So if you think of, and this might sound a little corny, but if you think of someone making a pizza crust and they're throwing it up in the air, they have the dough, they're throwing it up in the air, two sides are going to fall down, two sides are going up, that kind of organic flow of the curves at the edges. That's kind of what this piece reminds me of. And then it's almost like a tube structure around that perimeter that goes up and down and it's hollow on the inside with lights. And then the face of the tube structure has words Engraved isn't really the right word, but words that are part of it. So there's positive and negative spaces, there's structure, and then there's voids that make up the words of the piece, which actually becomes the structure as well. So this was my best (laughs) attempt at describing this. And I would love, Brian, if you could just add a little more detail to kind of what this piece looks like. Absolutely. That's That's a good description. Nice work. This piece is, I would describe it as two arches that come down and have a common touch point, but then you're right, it, it keeps going. And so it's this organic form of, of two arches that go down and back up again in somewhat of a circle. It's all made out of stainless steel. Like you said, it's somewhat of a tube structure of, of stainless steel. It's about 12 feet tall, about 15 feet across. And then the lettering is made by cutting that, that stainless steel skin. And so like you said, where the the lettering is cut in is where there's no material. And then this piece is lit from the inside. So it it really looks great when it's nighttime and the piece is lit. 
Yes, yes. Okay, so I am thinking of, you know, like a sculptor. So if an artist is making a piece, a lot of times they're doing those preliminary sketches or they're in their mind and then they're actually creating the piece as well. This is a little different because it's such a large scale and complex that the artist is coming up with the ideas and then the steel fabricator and you as a structural engineer are kind of making it happen. So can you maybe talk a little bit about how that transfer of idea goes from the designer, from the artist to you as the structural engineer? Yeah, absolutely. So the words that we typically use, you know, a lot of times structural engineers call themselves designers. When we're talking about art pieces, I tend to use the word design and engineer as two different things. So the design is the aesthetic of the piece that the artist comes up with. And then as the engineering, that's then trying to figure out a way to hold up the piece. It varies a little bit by the project. Sometimes the artist needs to put in their idea and try to win the project without being able to talk to an engineer. But a lot of times as we develop these relationships, the artist may even come to me during that process. So we can talk through it together, come up with ideas and figure out, you know, how are we gonna hold this piece up even before they submit their idea in the competition. So it's a, it really depends on the project, but uh, normally we get involved pretty early as you can imagine to, to help think this through. And in the ideal world, the fabricator joins us early in the project as well. And so all three of us can partner together to make sure that uh, we know how we're going to build it, how we're going to hold it up. And it's, a, it's really a fun process. Yeah, so that's cool. So is it typically like a sketch from the artist then? And then you're kind of starting to run numbers on that? That's right. And a lot of times it's more than a sketch. You know, a lot of times they've gone pretty far with this. It's almost more of a rendering, an image that looks a lot like the one we're talking about and that I'm sure you're going to share on the website. It'll look a lot like that as we start talking about it. And then the outside skin is what, you know, they already know what they want that to look like. And what we're really talking about is what do we do inside of that to make sure it stands up? Sure. So how are you modeling this? How are you getting into the structural design of this? Because it is not a <laughs> simple beam element that goes to another beam element to a column element like we sometimes traditionally think of structural engineering as it's much more complex and integrated than that. Absolutely. It's definitely one of the tricky parts of these projects is figuring out how we're going to model them. And you know, some of these, we might get very detailed in the analysis. Some we might try to figure out a more simplified approach just based on the sculpture. In this one, we did need to go more detailed, of course. And so we ended up using a, a three-dimensional model. We, we used a software called RAM Elements. And in this case, the the outside skin of the sculpture, that eighth inch stainless steel, that's actually the main structure. And so that's what we modeled in our analysis software is this curved arched shape. Really the whole skin of what you see is what our analysis software looks like in a three-dimensional model, then applied all the loads to it and then figured out ways to study it. One of the interesting things though, is that the lettering of course takes away some of that skin. And so then you know we're losing some of that material in our structure and we don't know exactly what it's going to look like because we're always working in parallel with the artist where the, the artist is working through the lettering design as we're working through the structural engineering design. And so what we did is we talked to, to Blessing up front and said, you know, how exactly do you think you're going to do this? How close do the letters get to the edge? And we estimated about how much material she could take out of the skin in the process. And we, we decided 50% was the answer. And so she worked to make sure she stayed under that 50% mark. And then we used only 50% of the material in our, in our structural analysis. 
I mean, that's so fascinating. Like, it's so complex, right? But then to take kind of a step back and try to make it as generalized as possible. So the 50% criteria, because like, as I was kind of doing some research preparing for this, it's such a honor, I would guess, to do the structural engineering for this because like it has so much feeling and heart to it. And then you are trusted with making that happen. So these words that are in the structure are intentional and very thought through, so that's so awesome that you're able to kind of give that stipulation of like, as long as I have this, we're good. And not getting so into the weeds of like, okay, we've got an A here and we've got an I here. Now what do we do? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we, we'd almost, we almost have to. It's, there's just no way we could work through that level of detail of the letters. And the lettering is an important part of the artist process. She really focuses on community engagement. And so then she involves the community in the selection of the lettering. And so that's why that that takes time. And so then we're working at the same time on two different parts of the process. Sure. And you alluded to something too about like how close can you get to the edge? Because when I'm looking at the picture of the structure, it looks like there are corner pieces of this kind of tubular structure. Is that used to kind of create a little bit of rigidity with the system? It does two things. For one, we, we did need it structurally just to have a corner to actually hold this this up as a tube. But then it also helps the fabrication process that, you know, they make this in panels and sheets that then they, they first take the sheet, they cut the sheet, and then they modify the sheet in order to make the shape. And they need a certain space to work with, to weld the sheets together, to then fasten them at the, at the splice locations. And so it really does both things. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point. So how are you getting the information to the fabricator since it's not exactly a 10 foot floor to floor plate height and (laughs) simple like that? It's much more complex and kind of a space diagram, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. It uh, it will vary a little bit by the project, depending on how the artist likes to work and how the fabricator likes to work. In this particular case, Blessing had a overall design intent with a CAD file that went with it so we could get the shape that she wanted to use. And then I used that same shape in the way the analysis model was done. And so I could take her 3D form and we could use it in the analysis model. And then the fabricator did the same. And this particular fabricator, Gizmo, does a lot of 3D modeling. And so they use a a modeling software as well in order to to do the same. So it's a lot of communication through digital files to make sure we're talking about the same form. You're right, if if we had to describe this form on paper without exchanging a digital file, it'd be it'd be almost impossible. Yeah. So do you have to go through a permitting process? Like do you have to submit drawings to the jurisdiction for a building permit for it? It really depends on the jurisdiction, but almost always, yes, we, there's there's a permitting process. Sometimes they want to see more of the foundations. That's what almost every jurisdiction really wants to see the foundations. But then depending on the sculpture, we'll often have our design drawings goes in. And then the artist has a technical submittal typically as well. So it, it's even more than just the structural engineering drawings. It'll be the overall design intent and how they plan to do the lighting and the electrical needs they might have for the lighting that tends to all go in together as a technical submittal. Okay, awesome that the artist also has kind of that technical submittal. It's very fascinating. So what kind of forces or what kind of loads do you have to design these structures for? Yeah, that's a good question. And one we've talked about a lot. There isn't really a set design criteria for these sculptures. The building code is meant really for buildings. Now it does have provisions for other structures, but it 
it depends on the jurisdiction whether they'll want these sculptures to meet a building code or not. What we typically do is start with just the overall intent. You know, how long is the piece going to be installed? Does the public have access to the piece? In general, though, they tend to be installed for a long time and the public almost always has access to them. And so we really do want to use a real building code for these. In this case, it's you know in Santa Rosa, California, so we use the California building code. So we did end up using the building code. From a force standpoint, we obviously account for the dead load of the structure. Then we apply the lateral loads, wind loads, and earthquake loads. We'll always look at snow and ice loads, and then some sort of live load, depending on the, the sculpture. So for this particular one, snow and ice doesn't happen a lot in California, so not a lot of snow and ice load on this one. Earthquake loads are high in California, but in this case, it's a very lightweight structure, so it's actually the wind loads that govern the design. The one other load we put on it, though, is a, a 300-pound live load, just in case somebody wanted to climb on it. But don't tell anyone that because we, we don't really want anyone climbing on it. <laughs> They're not supposed to, but if they did, they would not. <laughs> it's not going to fall down. That's right. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, like sometimes if it's at a bench height, <laughs> someone might sit down on it, right? <laughs> it's interesting you say that. We actually typically put more loading at those low spots than the high spots. We put the 300-pound load really anywhere just in case somebody were to climb all the way up it. But then we put more loading down at the bottom, knowing that it's likely someone will lean on it, sit on it, and uh, we, we make sure that that's a part of the design. Often the uh, the spacing of the stiffeners inside of the skin are tighter in that area, just for that exact reason, that it's more likely people are going to be touching the, those spots down low. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's fascinating and totally makes sense. It's one of those things that you can't necessarily glean from the code because it's so specialized, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm thinking about the wind load section and like, so is it a freestanding sign? Is it a partially enclosed building? <laughs> like what area of the wind load code do you go to for something like this? Yeah, that's a great question. When we keep coming back to and thinking through each time, the sign is definitely a good place to go. A lot of these are a lot like a sign. The perforations are interesting because in some ways that does help us, but it depends on the sculpture. Some of these will actually have a, a clear backing behind the letters so that you can't see through them, in which case then they're solid. And sometimes that decision isn't made very early in the process because it could almost change late that, you know, either the jurisdiction required it or the client wanted it a certain way. So we typically don't account for the perforations and reducing the wind load just in case that decision gets made and it's got a, a clear backing behind there. So we normally apply wind load to the whole surface. We look at it a couple different ways in the ASCE 7 design guide. Often it's the sign section that we use though. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So most of these are exterior. So they're installed and you know occupy exterior space. Are there certain durability requirements that you need to take into account? I know a lot of times that kind of falls on the architectural side of things too. I was just curious if there's anything structurally that you kind of have to pay attention to or mitigate for that exterior application and being exposed to the elements. Absolutely. No, it's a great question. And you actually hit on a couple interesting topics there. So with regard to the exterior application, it is one of the more challenging parts of these is they're almost always exterior, at least most of the ones that I've done. So we really do want to think about durability and corrosion resistance. We often use some sort of more durable metal like stainless steel or galvanized steel, maybe aluminum. 
if we use mild steel, we're going to make sure it's painted well and painted in the shop and comes out with a very solid coating that even goes, say, into the bolt holes and that sort of thing. Really try to make sure we have a good coating. One thing that's interesting is that those metals, though, if they're near each other in a wet environment and they're different metals, say stainless steel and galvanized steel, then they might actually increase the corrosion potential by what they call dissimilar metals. So that's one thing we watch for is that if the skin's going to be stainless steel, we may not want to pay for stainless steel for the whole structure, but if we switch somewhere, then everywhere those two metals touch, we need to have some sort of separation, like a plastic washer or a rubber gasket of some sort to make sure that we, we don't have that corrosion potential of dissimilar metals. On this particular piece, they were planning to use stainless steel for the exterior, and the backup structure is actually not much on this one. We were able to minimize how much backup structure we have inside. And so we were able to use stainless for all of it. And that way we didn't have to worry about any of the, the mixing metals, the dissimilar metals. It's the whole thing's made out of stainless, the skin, the backup structure, even the uh, base plates and anchor bolts. That was going to be my next question is, yeah, how that works at the base plate and the anchor rods. But okay, stainless for everything. We certainly have to be careful with it. In this case, because we were we were down to just a couple things that weren't stainless, we just went with stainless with everything. That's awesome and fascinating. Okay, so I feel like we we're kind of working our way down the structure here to the base plates. So what comes after the base plates to the foundation? So for this particular structure, there's only two very small contact points. So how are you designing these foundations and how are you getting, because I mean, we've got horizontal forces with the wind loads and then gravity loads as well, coming down to really just these two points. Can you talk about that a little bit and kind of describe how you go about foundation design for these? Absolutely. Uh, foundations are every structural engineer's favorite part of the project, right? They, uh, <laughs> the, the, the part that's so important and no one ever sees. Yes. It's funny that you said uh, two small foundations because I, I often hear that they're not so small, but, they, but in the big <laughs> scheme of things, they, uh, they are pretty small. They, you know, the loads on these are not extreme. They're not super heavy. But like you said, there's only two touch points. And so they really cantilever off of those touch points, which induces moment into the foundation. That's, that's the tricky part. One of the most interesting parts about the foundation design, believe it or not, is the first question we all have to always ask is, where are the anchor bolts? And that might seem silly, but the anchor bolts are often hard to hide. And so on this particular sculpture, the anchor bolts are up at grade, and there's an access panel inside the piece that allows them to get in and put the nuts on as they install the piece. Sometimes though, that's not the case. You can't hide the anchor bolts, in which case we really can't put them at grade which means we have to push them down, which means instead of the top of the footing being up at grade, we actually put the top of the footing down below grade. And it really, that first question changes our whole foundation approach because as soon as you drop the anchor bolts down below grade, now you need some sort of post that goes down to engage the footing and the posts and the anchor bolts are exposed to soil, which is actually the worst case corrosion situation. And so then we often will have to come back and then cover that with either some sort of coating that's going to protect it below grade, maybe even a secondary concrete pour, which starts to get into their installation sequence. So it, it's interesting. The very first question is, you know, where are the anchor bolts? And it makes a big difference. In this case, because they were able to put an access panel on the side of the piece, we could push the foundations all the way up to grade. Actually, they're a, a couple inches above grade, which I'll talk about here in a second. Um, and then they finish all the site work. And then the last thing they do is they bring the piece on and install it, which, which is really the easiest way to go if we can do that. 
Yeah, but like talk about forethought because that takes a lot of planning to get to that point because I can only imagine an artist like they had this beautiful piece and then down at the bottom they've got four anchor rods that are sticking up that don't really tie in with the vibe of their art piece, right? That's right. But I'm super impressed at the fact that you were able to come up with that solution of having an access panel in the actual piece to allow for those anchor rods to be in there. And really, if they're inside the piece, like you said, it has that material that is covering the negative space. So it's, it's essentially protected from the elements, maybe not like fully like watertight, but at least it doesn't have snow or water right up against it all the time. It gives it a little protection and from uh, people being able to get to them also, right? Yes, yes, very true. And it's hidden. I love it. Okay, can you talk a little bit about, you said that the foundation is up a few inches. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that happens on these, I'll back up just a second to something you said earlier about often the architect participates in the corrosion protection. And on these projects, often there isn't all the different disciplines that you would have, say, in a building. And so as the engineer, we get to participate in a lot of different aspects, which has been fun and and stretches us some to think about corrosion potential, to think about, you know, where the electrical is coming in. And in this case, to think about ADA. So for part of ADA design is for those who are visually impaired and having a head knocker without a warning can be a real problem. And so these pieces that have these arches create a challenge because the piece comes off the ground and then arches up and there's a portion of the sculpture that's off the ground but doesn't have adequate head clearance. And so we need to come up with some way to warn people who are visually impaired and they call it cane detection, something that if someone were walking with a cane, they would they would hit that before that their head gets to the piece. And so in this case, we have these two somewhat kidney-shaped concrete islands that are, they actually are the foundation. We originally had the foundation square And then as we started talking through this process, we ended up just deciding to make the foundation the same cane detection. And so that kidney-shaped island really follows the shape of the head clearance above, that six foot eight head clearance you need for ADA. And then that piece provides both the foundation and the cane detection at the same time. I love that. That's so cool. Like I would have never even thought of that. But like when I look at the picture, they do kind of play with each other too, the foundation and the structure with that, you know, coming out to a certain distance so that you don't have a head knocking issue. That's right. Very fascinating. Yeah, definitely a a fun part of the process. (laughs) Love it. A lot of this stuff is very intricate. So how do you find steel fabricator that that you trust, because it's just so specialized and so niche. How do you have that buy-in and that level of comfort with the steel fabricator? Well, as you'd expect, it's not easy to find a specialty fabricator who does this. There there aren't a ton of them out there that I know of. Uh, I have worked with quite a few though. The one I work with the most is the one that did this piece, Gizmo. And so we got introduced probably eight or 10 years ago and just started doing work together. And, you know, we, we like working together. And so, you know, I I tend to help them on a lot of their pieces and vice versa. And so what's interesting is that a lot of times they're not even local to the piece. They do work all over the country, but in this particular one, the the piece is located not far away from them because they're in San Francisco. Sure. Okay. So this begs another question, I guess. So how did you get into this type of work from buildings to sculptural art pieces? 
Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I'll start with a little background information. So I, I used to work for an architectural engineering firm, Little, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I really enjoyed working with the architects every day, which might sound funny because I've heard a lot of structural engineers have a hard time working with architects because architects think so differently than structural engineers. But for me, that's actually a good thing. I really enjoy working with people whose strengths are different from my own. You know, they tend to think of things that I wouldn't think of, and hopefully the opposite is true as well. I find that uh, when you're working with somebody who is different, then you can accomplish more than either one of you could do on your own. So about 10 years ago, I was working for the AE firm, and an architect asked if I would talk to an artist about a foundation for a project they were working on. And so, you know, we, we started talking and they said, wow, I've never had an engineer actually listen to me before. I, I found that I enjoyed hearing what they were doing and trying to figure out how, how to hold it up. And so that turned into another project and another project. And now I do probably about a dozen a year of, uh, of these art installations. I do want to give just one quick shout out to Little since I mentioned them. You know, the piece that we're talking about today, Unum, I actually started while working at Little. And so then now that I work at TEC, we partner together for the completion of the design. Gotcha. Very fascinating. Yes, it's one of those things that it seems like once you find a fabricator and a structural engineer that you're able to do a successful project with or a few projects with, you want to keep those people because there's so many things like the ADA requirements that you're talking about earlier. So many things that maybe you wouldn't think of until you go through the whole process. Absolutely. Yeah. Each time we learn and hopefully get a little better at it. Yes. Love it. Okay. So the way that this is positioned is, you know, it has that arch. So one thing that I wanted to talk about is catenary forces. So for the listener that is maybe not familiar with these types of forces, if you think of, let's say a power line, a series of power lines. They have the poles and then in between the poles, the actual power line, sometimes it drapes down a little bit, which creates a horizontal force that is known as a catenary force. So this happens as well, I would imagine, with these structures that are also draping down like that. So can you get into that a little bit, Brian, and just talk about one, if these forces come up, and if so, how are you dealing with these and determining what they are and coming up with a solution for them? Hey, yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting topic. Now, in this particular project, we don't have catenary forces. You almost have the opposite of that on this one. You know, you've got the arch, and if you kind of flip the arch upside down with something hanging, that would be more the catenary force. It's really a common thing that happens. And like you said, power lines is a good way to look at it. Another common one would be like a bird enclosure at the zoo where you've got netting and wire ropes that go to supports. You know, I've designed several of these catenary structures. What's so interesting is how much tension force is in the supports. The first time I designed one of these was, you know what, it was actually, I think, when we were working together back in Denver. And, you know, I started running the calcs on what I thought would be the right force. And, you know, there's some uh, design guides out there for catenary action. A lot of times it's meant for guardrails, you know, like guardrails around either vehicle barriers or for, you know, just handrail guardrails around an, an opening or a stair. So I started running the calculations and the forces I came up with at the end were much larger than I expected, meaning that the post the artist was planning to use 
I didn't think were big enough. And so, you know, I, I told them how big the post needed to be. And I think they thought I was crazy. And I was a little suspicious of the results myself. And the piece wasn't even that heavy. It was about 150 pounds and the wire rope was going maybe 20 feet. It, it wasn't, you know, anything overly large. But then after we put the piece up, you could actually see the post bending in under the weight of this of this 150 pound load. And so I realized the calculations actually aren't crazy. There really are a lot of force in these wires. And it's funny, I've, I still have the photo from that, that first one I did. And I use it whenever we're talking about catenary action to show them just like th these forces are real. It really will pull these posts in. From my experience, the, the force on the wire can often be in the range of 10 times what you're hanging in the middle. And so if you just stick a post up 20 feet and then try to have a wire rope come into the side of it, can be a real challenge. One of the, the best strategies would then be to add guy wires, right? Which is what you see in the in utility poles. That's often how they how they resolve those. A lot of times you'll see that the bird enclosures too. I actually have one of these pieces that we're designing right now in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that was exactly the strategy we took. We, we ended up adding guy wires to the posts in order to take that large tension force. Okay, so the other question to extrapolate this one step further. So you have that large horizontal force that's up at the top of your post. How is that affecting your foundations? If you can use guy wires, it's great because you just take it right into the guy wire and right into the ground and, it, and then you take that moment away. If you can't, what you really do is you end up with a large moment on your foundation. So then your foundation just needs to be much larger in order to accommodate that. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point because I guess where I see this a lot too would maybe be exterior patios where they're trying to get some sort of shade structure on top of it. And sometimes they just kind of roll whatever posts they have out there and hope that it works and it's leaning in. So that's something like with shade cells that I have noticed as well, that sometimes those horizontal forces can get rather large and require a lot more than a wood post or, you know, like a three inch diameter post, I guess sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Obviously it depends on what you're supporting and how far the next support is, but yes, they can get a lot larger than what we anticipate sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So what would you say is the most fascinating thing about the Unum project? Yeah, I would say the way in which the skin is the structure is probably the most fascinating thing. A lot of times these pieces will have an internal pipe support frame, you know, say an, an internal arch, and then the skin is just hanging off of it. On this one, we weren't sure that we were going to need that. And in fact, the fabricator asked us to consider not having that internal pipe frame, partly for the way in which they wanted to fabricate it, and partly to make sure that we could stay on budget. That meant additional modeling time for us and evaluating how that skin would perform. You know, there's obviously the perforations in the skin. We talked about the, you know, 50% of it being able to be removed for lettering, but it's also fairly thin with a fairly large face, you know, several feet even with only an eighth inch material. So just thinking through the, the local buckling on those faces and also the lettering really took some extra effort. Once we had gone through all of our analysis, we wanted to make sure that it was going to work the way we thought. And the fabricator was already doing a mock-up of a portion of the sculpture so that they could test their fabrication techniques and also a sample of the lettering, which is not uncommon on these. You know, they're always, each one of these is a little different than anything we've ever done before. And so they often do a mock-up. So we asked them if they would do a load test on the mock-up. 
and they they took it and they they mounted it and they pulled on it with 2,000 pounds and measured the deflection. And then we were able to use that by and do the exact same thing in our analysis model, that same section, and compare the results really as a, a proof of concept to make sure that it was going to work the way we thought it would. Yeah, that's fascinating. So to, just to reiterate that, to make sure that I caught that and that the, that the listener caught that, the fabricator is doing a mock-up of a certain section of this, putting a load on it, then you're going into your analysis model that's on your computer and applying that same load to see what the deflection and what the movement is relative to what happened in the real world. Absolutely. Yep, that's exactly right. That's fascinating. So what did you find out? Yeah, it matched up pretty closely. Okay. The deflections looked a little differently. You know, one thing you've got to sort through is just exactly what the piece looks like because they're not able to build the whole thing. Of course, it's a it's a portion of it, but it, it matched up really closely, and we could it, we could just see that it was going to work the way we intended it to. And the what we backed out was the stress they put on the piece. We could compare to the maximum stresses that the piece was likely to see under maximum wind and seismic conditions, and make sure that it was going to function the way we thought. That's fascinating. And what a great a testament to your modeling, but also what a great, like, just peace of mind too, to know that you had some testing behind it too. Absolutely. And that's one of the fun things about these projects is because they're so different, it's really a partnership between the artist and the fabricator and the engineer, all the way through design, through thinking through how to go about it, and really even through fabrication. I'm typically talking to the fabricator constantly during fabrication. I just had a FaceTime call this week with them as they were going through different welds on another project and just thinking it through together and really all the way until they install it. It's a, it's a fun collaboration. Very cool. Everyone is unique. Everyone is original and complex. So how are you coming up with a budget for design and how are they coming up with the overall budget for the project? You know, that can certainly be a challenge. Really, this is true for any construction project, right? But a lot of times you have a baseline to go back to another building that was kind of like it. And for these, you often don't have that. And so a lot of times what it really means is we all have to stop and think about really almost what is it going to take to do this? I think through how much time it's going to take, maybe before I can even put my budget together, I have to think through how am I going to analyze it? Is this one I do in software? Is this one I do by hand? Think through really the whole process in order to come up with how much time it's going to take. And the fabricator is the same. You know, Often we try to get a fabricator involved as early as possible. And they really have to do the same. They can't just say, you know, it's 100 square feet and put a number to it. They really have to think through what thickness of the material and, you know, how much of it and what, what's it going to take to fabricate and how much welding. One interesting conversation we always have early on is they'll want to know how thick the material needs to be. And, you know, of course, that's about the last thing we know as an engineer after we've done all the modeling, then we can finally pick the thickness. But it's the first thing they need in order to know what it's going to cost to know if we can build it. So it's, uh, that's one of the things we always have to work through early in a project. <laughs> yeah, so fascinating because, yeah, there are so many things. And I feel like especially if it's a public installation, they have to have their funding available up front to know if it's doable or not. And so much of that is not known until you're many steps down the road. That's right. That's definitely one of the, the hard parts about it. And I, I've heard artists talk about that before that depending on the personality of the artist could could keep them up at night. And uh, I think it it probably takes a calm artist to be able to navigate this choppy water and be able to just kind of work through the process. 
Sometimes it'll mean we have to think about a different scale of the sculpture, but typically we're able to work with the scale and the design they intended. And it's really more just about how we go about the fabrication. In this case, can we remove the internal frame and make the skin do the work and coming up with some way to do unique fabrication to, to make sure it's going to look the way they intended. Creative problem solving for structural engineers. That's right. <laughs> what we love, right? Yes, right? Like it has to be a balance. I feel like it has to be a balance of us exercising our artistic abilities and straightforward things too. So <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Okay, so if you could give this project a theme song, what would it be? Yeah, that's funny. It's a great question. Well, since my job is to uh, make these sculptures stand up, I'm going to go with I'm Still Standing by uh, Elton John. Okay, yes, love it. That's a great one. Great one for sure. Love it. A, a good structural engineering song, right? I'm, I'm sure that's what he intended. <laughs> Yes. Well, another song that we've had is Another One Bites the Dust. So, yes, it's kind of like the opposite of it. So That's funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to avoid that one. Yes, I'm still standing. I love the optimism of that. I think that is kind of step number one for us, right, in the work that we do. Absolutely. <laughs> love it. Okay, Brian, what do you do to recharge? I am definitely a family man, so I, uh, I, I recharge mostly by spending time with my wife and my four kids. Ideally, if we could throw in some uh, hiking in the nearby mountains, then uh, then I'm a happy man. Awesome. Yeah, I see you as high energy a lot of the time. So that's awesome. I know you're a mountain climber too, right? Like you do some 14ers and stuff. You still do that kind of stuff? When I can. As I get older, it's maybe a, a little bit lesser in scale. But yeah, no, I, I love climbing 14ers in Colorado. And we definitely like getting out and doing hiking whenever we can. Awesome. Love it. Nature is great, right? Oh, absolutely. We love it. Well, thanks, Brian, so much for being on and talking about the Unum Project. I think what you're doing is super fascinating, and I love, love, love the artistic side of it, too. So great job taking on kind of that unknown, uncharted or less charted territory of artistic design, I guess is what I'll leave it at. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Much appreciated. Great talking with you again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.